Good morning. Let me just uh, pray for help here. Father, we thank you uh, that all your words, all your words are God-breathed. So Lord, give us strength as we go through this difficult passage today and give glory to you in Jesus. Amen. Good morning. You know, in 1741, there was a sermon preached that changed the colonies. You know, we weren't a nation just yet. So when you think about what kind of sermon would do that, maybe you think like, oh, a sermon on God's love and how great uh, it is. Or maybe a sermon on doing the right things and, and just helping each other. But it wasn't. And you may know what this sermon is. It was Jonathan Edwards' sermon called Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. Today, it would not preach well. Let me just read one little part. Um, I mean, you can look it up, and if you've never read it, it's worth your time. Here's one thing that people always point out. Here's Edward says, You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and burn it asunder. It will be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it for all eternity. This is what he preached to his congregation in a monotone. In a monotone. But you know what God did? God took that sermon and we call it the first great awakening and a large part of New England and America, the colonies, came to Jesus. Change the landscape, the spiritual landscape. So today, as we think about this sermon, we know that it will not preach well. Survey says only 54% of people in America actually think they will stand before the Lord in judgment. And most of the Christians actually think that talking about the judgment of God, it, it seems beneath God. It, it seems like he's just an angry little child, you know, just running a, with a hammer to go after us. But in this in the Bible, and especially in chapter 18, we see, we'll see that God's wrath is not arbitrary or capricious. His wrath, judgment on the earth dwellers is measured, patient, and complete. So the, the book of Revelation does not allow us to ignore this wrath and judgment of a holy God. So today, what I want to do is look at that judgment and wrath. Then I want to skip down to the lament, the lament that Toby read. 
And then I want to come back to verse 4 and look at the exhortation to come out. Um, Like a song going off, the last three weeks have been about judgment. I won't read all of them, but like in verse 15, 1, I saw another angel, another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plates, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Chapter 16, Then I heard a loud voice in the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And last week, come, verse 17, I mean, chapter 17, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Over and over we see this judgment. So then we ask ourselves, why is this necessary? That's what confronts us today. So if we look at chapter 18, we see the final notes of, of the symphony of human suffering finally being resolved. The great city of the earth dwellers is finally being judged. The angel cries out, Fallen! Fallen! It's Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean, detestable beast. If this is the world system of man's rejection of Jesus Christ. It's exposed. It's judged. It's a cruel parody like of the Wizard of Oz when you pull back the curtain instead of seeing the man with the controls, you actually see when Babylon falls, she's really a haunt for demons and every unclean spirit. That's what we see. Remember, in Revelation, there are only two cities, right? The city of of earth dwellers and the city of God, which we will get to next week and the week after. The great city here in Babylon represents the rejection of Jesus Christ worldwide. Six times in our chapter, it is called great. This world system, exemplified by Rome on the seven hills, has ruled on the earth for at least, as far as we know, the least six millennia. And we realize that these two competing systems and cities cannot go on forever. One is true, the city of God. The new Jerusalem is an everlasting city. The other must be destroyed. So the question before us, why judgment? Why the wrath of God? You know why? Because the question 
in our minds, how long, O Lord, must be answered? This is the answer. Remember back in chapter 6, there was the, the saints underneath the altar, right? And they said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the question. How long? But, but how did we get here? Right? How did the human race get to this point? Now, I don't want to go back to the garden or all the judgments on the Old Testament. What I want to do is, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Because we're going to spend some time in, in Romans. I want to show you how we got here. Paul is not queasy about talking about the wrath of God. So go to Romans 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What has been known about God has been made plain to them. No excuses here. God cannot let ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men and women go unpunished. He is a holy God. He cannot take part in sin. That is bad news for earth dwellers of Revelation. But the news is worse than that. It is bad news for us. Turn over, turn over to chapter 3. But now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the prophets, uh, law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women. Who does that include? All have sinned. All face the wrath of God in judgment, including you and me. But there is good news, isn't there? We need to continue reading to verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All who put their faith in Christ Jesus, all who repent and believe, obtain redemption in Christ Jesus. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ today, you have that redemption. But wait. There's more, like it gives you a nice commercial. Wait, there's more. This redemption, verse 24, 
in, that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus becomes our propitiation by his blood. Now this word propitiation means to appease, to satisfy by sacrifice. It is not a word that we use today because as we walk around um, Marcy Holmes or Crystal, we do not see people sacrificing to gods, right? But in Paul's day, propitiation meant to appease the wrath of a god. If a Roman farmer wanted a good crop, he would, open, he would offer a sacrifice to Saturn, the god of harvest, to appease, to propitiation, to propitiate him. Uh, John Murray, in my, one of my favorite old books, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says this. Propitiation presupposes the wrath and displeasure of God. And the purpose of propitiation is the removal of this displeasure. Very simply saying, and he continues, the doctrine of propitiation means that Christ propitiated the wrath of God and rendered God propitious to his people. Wow, that's a lot of propitiation and propitiation. Meaning, satisfied. God is satisfied. Now last week, Jeremy talked about the mystery of the prostitute, right? And we learned something. That the word mystery doesn't mean whodunit, right? But the word mystery means something that was hidden in the Old Testament is now revealed in the New Testament. So in Romans 3, propitiation, which was hidden in the Old Testament, is literally in NASB, publicly displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the word propitiation meant the mercy seat. Now, if you're well up on your uh, movie, when is it? Oh, shoot, I forgot the name of the movie. The Lost Art movie. Raiders of the Lost Art. You remember, they were looking for the Ark of the Covenant. That cover, that at the end of the movie, is taken off. That's called the mercy seat. It has the angels um, touching that's called the mercy seat. That's the word propitiation. Where was the Ark of the Covenant? Or where was it supposed to be? In the Holy of Holies. It was hidden from public view and only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement could go in with a sacrifice and sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel. Now, Jesus 
becomes the mercy seat. On the cross, Jesus is publicly displayed, put forward, taking the judgment that we deserve so that we can be justified, that we can be saved through his sacrifice, through his blood. How, how do we know this happened? It, I, I didn't say that, but, but you say, well, Paul, you know, maybe that's what you think. No, I'm going to show you. Okay, Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Ailey, Ailey, lama that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at this point in human history that the Father, as the song that we're going to sing after this, turns his face away from Jesus. When he becomes the sin bearer. Jesus takes all the sins of his people on him and then dies for those sins. So how do we know that God was satisfied just before Jesus died. Remember he said, my God, my God? Then he says, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Father is satisfied. Jesus has become the propitiation in his blood. And this propitiation by his blood shows, Paul says, shows God's righteousness at the present time that he might be just. God is just. And the justifier of the one who has put his faith in Jesus. So Jesus took the wrath for believers' sins. Where did the rest of the wrath go? I just, I cut out the part in my sermon when I was going to bring up the first law of thermodynamics, okay? The energy can't be destroyed. God's wrath cannot be destroyed. It must be satisfied. Some of it went on Christ. Where did the rest go? Look at verse 5 of Revelation 18. Let's go back there. He's talking about the great sinners. He said, her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mits a double portion for her in the cup she mits. The rest of God's wrath is now poured out on Babylon and the earth dwellers. The city that kills the saints and mocks Jesus Christ, suffering the wrath of God. And as, as it is poured out on Babylon, that great city, the kings and merchants lament. The kings and merchants of earth Lament. Look at verses 9 to 23. This is a pattern. This is something new. This pattern is in Ezekiel 26, 27, 28. As Ezekiel 
prophesied against the, the town of the city of Tyre on the coast of Palestine that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and literally wipe them out. So the same thing going on here in 18, chapter 18 is from Ezekiel 26 and 27. We're not going to have time to look at all the details. Compare those passages. It's really amazing. But two things jump out at us that we have time for this morning. Both groups will stand far off. The kings and merchants now want to separate themselves from the great city. Now that judgment is looming, they think they can pretend that they are not part of the world system. Both the kings and merchants of the earth will stand off in fear of torment. Why? Though they pretend to step away, they are just as culpable because the kings have committed immorality with the great city and the merchants have grown rich from her. The second thing to notice is that the kings and merchants really don't care about the great city of the earth dwellers. They just enjoyed the fruits of power and money from a world system of Babylon. Oh, they weep and mourn, right? But it's only because they lost their worldly power and influence and riches. Now, Beale, in his commentary, says this. Their allegiance, this is about the, the, the people in the Roman times, their allegiance to both Caesar and the patron gods of the trade guilds was essential for people to maintain a good standing in their trades. Local and regional political leaders had to support the system to keep their offices and the economic benefits that came with high positions. In fact, this is not in my sermon, but it hasn't really changed today, right? They haven't really changed. After this lament of the kings and the merchants, we see yet another angel taking up a great millstone and throwing it into the sea so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down. Now, in the Greek language, um, they have no trouble, they have no trouble using a double negative, okay? It is the strongest form of negation. Again, look at verses Look at verses, um, yeah, 19 through 24. This is the death knell. They can use the Greek, ume as he, no more. The great city found no more. The sound of music heard no more. Craftsmen Found no more. The sound of harvest and food production 
heard no more. The light of lamps shining no more. The voice of bridegroom and bride heard no more. No more life as we know it. Judgment is finished. Like at the end of chapter 16, it is done. You know, when I hear these words, I think of a movie. I'm looking around. Some of you weren't even born, okay? Deep, the deep impact. If one of these, um, you know, a, a comet is going to come and destroy the earth, okay? Well, it's really interesting. There's a scene in the end of the movie where part of the comet, comet goes into the Atlantic Ocean and this wave that's like two or 3,000 feet high comes over the Twin Towers, this is before they fell, and just annihilates New York. And there's a scene where the Statue of Liberty with her light is under the ocean. The light is no more. That's what's going to happen when Babylon falls. Now, there's an exhortation for us in verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, I find verse 4 actually surprising. I would think that when you have verses 1 to 3, you would just continue to talk about the judgment. But John hears the angel, who is now echoing Jeremiah 51, 45, where he tells the people of Israel, they were exiled in Babylon, Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. See, the people of God must be distinct from the earth dwellers. We follow Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us, taken upon himself the wrath and judgment meant for us. But we cannot trust in God and the world at the same time. We cannot serve God and mammon like the, the Matthew 7 or 6. When we come to Christ, we join the people of God and are no longer identified with the earth dwellers. Sam Storm in his sermon, I thought, had a really good point. The warning to the church is evident. Beware of trusting the economic, in economic security. The world may appear to provide a firewall against future distress, but it is only an illusion. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Jeremy alluded to the account of Lot, Abraham's nephew, in Sodom. And I think that's a good word picture here. Take some time this week the smoke and the burning, and compare those two. But think about it. I think it's a good word of verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest she take part in her sins. Lot 
came out of Sodom to escape death and destruction. It was good that he did, even though I wasn't quite sure that he was ready to leave. So when we come out into the world, we don't separate ourselves, but we come out to be salt and light. Well, I, I guess Lot's wife did become salt, but that's not in the right way, right? Lot was very close to participating in Sodom's sin. He liked the nearness of it. Compare Psalm 1 and, and Lot someday. That's a fun study to do. He, you, we find him in the city square at the end. But we are to come and be salt and light. Now, in men's retreat, Matt, Matt Holmes led us through a little discussion of, uh, of a, book, a little book called How to Reach the West Again by Tim Keller. Uh, Keller looks at how we can be salt and light in our post-Christian culture. And then in the book, he quotes another book by James Hunter, which is entitled, To Change the World, the Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. That's a long title. Um, but this is what he Keller says. We should strive for faithful presence within, our, within the culture. According to Hunter, Christians do not withdraw from the culture, but they do not compromise, and they do not try to dominate. They simply enter every field trying to be salt and light, trying to serve, and yet at the same time be true to their Christian faith. They're faithful, which means they stay true to the Bible, but they are present. Keller then goes on to say a comment about being the salt of the earth. Matthew, this is what Keller writes, Matthew 5.13 tells us that we are to be salt of the earth. This is a wonderful metaphor. In ancient times, salt was used not only to bring flavor out of meat, but to preserve it from decay. So when Jesus said we are to be salt of the earth, Keller continues, he meant we're supposed to be honest, work hard, do good, and keep things from becoming corrupt. But also be open about our Christianity. Jeremiah 29 tells, this is uh, Keller still, Jeremiah 29 tells us that after the Israelites were exiled to Babylon, they were to seek the peace in the city. Literally, seek the welfare of the city, for in their welfare is your welfare. Plant gardens, build houses, seek its prosperity. We can still serve people, be good neighbors, and be involved in culture while being faithful to and open about our Christianity. Remember Jesus' words at the end of, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount after the Beatitudes, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 So we come out of the culture, come out of the sins in the culture to impact 
and culture with our presence and our actions. So where is God's wrath going to fall on you today? Has Jesus taken your wrath? The wrath meant for you? Becoming your substitute? Becoming your substitute. Now we've been talking about the tale of the two cities off and on for the last few months. And there was a wonderful picture of substitution at the end of the book. Now, it's not a foreword alert because the book has been around for 162 years, so you shouldn't be foiled, okay? If you haven't read it, go read it. Okay. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever so liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Sidney Carton recited those words over and over. As he looked up at the prison wall, the window way up in the forest, where his friend Charles Darnay was awaiting the guillotine the next day. Carton pondered this verse because he had decided to perform the ultimate, ultimate act of love for Charles Darnay. To reunite him, reunite him with his wife Lucy and their young daughter. He was going to take the place of Charles Sunday and be his substitute at the guillotine. You see, Sidney Carton looked a lot like Charles Sarnay, especially when he let his hair down. And he loved Lucy, but he knew he could never have her as his wife. So how could he show his love to her? So he used his contacts, all part of the story, to gain entrance to the prison on the appointed day. He distracts Charles, gives him chloroform, changes clothes, and Charles Sonnet, supervised, is taken away. And Sidney takes his place in Charles' cell, awaiting the carts to transport him to the guillotine. He is successful at his ruse, and he takes Charles Darnay's place, and the family is able to flee Paris. Charles Darnay was unjustly condemned, we are not, because our sin, because of our sin, we must die. And yet we have someone who has died in our place. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, the innocent one has taken our guilt and died for our sins so that we can have life full and eternal in his presence. Will you not trust in him today? Come out from the world's sins. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus. As we segue into the Lord's Supper, 
This is what we celebrate each week. That we deserve the wrath of God, but we can take the elements as a reminder that he has taken our judgment, our wrath from us. He has stood in our sin, giving us his righteousness in place of our sins. This is what we proclaim each week in the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the supper is a reenactment of Jesus' story and our participation in it. The bread represents his body, the cup, his blood, through which we become a kingdom and priest to God. This is the table for believers then. As you have embraced the gospel and repented and believed. If you are not a believer, we ask you to participate by observing. But I would encourage you, if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, you can do that right now. You don't need to do any kind of special ceremony or, or absolution or anything like that. We, you can come to Christ right now. And if not, observe the witness of God's people as we come and share in the meal. And then search your hearts. Search your hearts. So you are here on purpose and for a purpose. Christ is not absent, but his presence through the Holy Spirit. He is calling all of us to repent and believe that he is worthy of our life. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in the place. Come, take the elements, take them back, you season, we will celebrate the meal together.